This week on episode 28 of Insecurity, we're revisiting the aftermath and the fallout of our previously discussed news items just to see how they've affected our lives and how they've changed and how we've grown as people together as friends. Please visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes to leave comments and to visit the show notes. And follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. Or send us an email at feedback at in-security.org. My name is Matt. And my name is Max. So, let me ask you, buddy. Let you ask me. How's your how's your week been? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting so far, this week at least. Uh, this week I've actually started paternity leave. So I'm taking off uh, six weeks, starting yesterday. Nice. Yep. And it worked out really well because yesterday is when Mia turned eight. It was, she had a birthday. So we were able to do a thing during the day for her, which was Congratulations cool. to her. And then, yeah, that's great. I'll uh, pass on the congratulations. And then at night, we had my in-laws come over. And so we had like a birthday dinner there. Uh, so that was good news. And at the end of when I'm off is actually when school starts back up. So Carrie will be able to handle getting the kids to school and handling our newborn son, who's like a month and a half old, six weeks old at this point. What are the baby questions I'm supposed to ask? How is he sleeping? Uh, He is sleeping like a baby, which means up every two hours demanding breast milk. And uh, yeah, so that that's what's going on here. How about over in your world? How's uh, how's tricks? As I might have mentioned at some point, my roommates are uh, working on their first, and so we are deciding that we're probably not going to be roommates anymore. So I'm going to move in with Sharon and Stuart. Cool. Um, we're going to get a place all three of us. So is that figure. becoming more serious then? Yeah. So I mean that's impending at this point huh cool as they are getting near to completion of their uh, child creation process um outside of that as of saturday i'm going to be in montreal yes that's very cool so i think we're gonna try if if it works for you and i can manage it we're gonna record some batched episodes now and edit them and send them out uh i guess over the rest of the summer right I've got about three weeks of, yeah, three weeks of Montreal, and then I don't know what uh, the rest of the plans are after that. All right. Well, it sounds like good times. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. And then, how about you? Uh, so I've got two more weeks here, and then we're heading out to the East Coast. So further east than Quebec, all the way out to Nova Scotia for the pretty much month of August and uh, come back in time for the kids to go to school. Super sweet. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be good. Good time. So now I'm finding fun stuff for, to do with the kids and fill up their summer, which is uh, a rare privilege. Going to go to the Ripley Aquarium downtown Toronto. 
going to go to the Royal Ontario Museum, going to uh, do some fun stuff. Yeah, there's a new uh, ginormous aquarium that they've built downtown Toronto. Like Ripley's Believe It or Fish? Yes, exactly. Huh. But it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's just... Is it the same Ripley? It is the same Ripley. They have it spelled the same font and everything like that, I think. But this is just an aquarium. It's not... Uh, I don't know for sure, because I haven't been there yet, but I don't believe that it's some sort of factoid, strange weirdness. I think it's just at a cool aquarium. Toronto hasn't had one, as far as I know. So I guess, uh, as we talked about last time, we're just going to touch base on some of the stuff we've covered beforehand and, and do a little revisit into the past. Yeah, we had uh, a couple of news items that we have talked about, or a couple of things that in some way relate to the news. It's been roughly six months since most of these news items hit. So now we just kind of wanted to take a look at the the fallout, the follow-up, really what's happened as a result of these things. We thought that was kind of a cool idea. Absolutely. So uh, we've got several distinct topics. Where do you want to start, Matt? I kind of tried to break it down um, by episode. So the first episode that I think we really kind of discussed something direct from the news was when we were talking about the mobile operating systems and the adoption rates. So that was one of the uh, one of the things that I thought we could maybe revisit a little bit, as those have since been, I guess, changed slightly. Right. So it seems like uh, people are upgrading their mobile phones perhaps a little bit quicker, and the the mobile phone makers are pushing out uh, newer versions, well, specifically around Android, because Apple, like we discussed in that episode, have always been keeping things up to date as much as they can. They have automatic updates rolling out, and people are getting those. But from the Android side of the view... Google's pushing manufacturers to actually come out with their newest version of the operating system, which is called KitKat, or version 4.4, if you want to go by that name. And so it looks like the swing has actually accelerated from people getting off earlier versions and buying new devices. So KitKat adoption rate is about 18%, which is good, but not great. So we took a look at a list um, that was actually distributed by Google showing their adoption rate. So I don't know how uh, how biased it may potentially be, but I don't really think that it would be too, too one-sided. Really what we were looking at is their adoption has in fact increased a little bit, which they put a list together of the percentage of devices. And as we discussed at great length in that episode, a major part of the problem is that the development is there, but you've got two really major factors that are stopping this uh, from just you know skyrocketing forward, which is the manufacturers get the updates. They run through, they put their software and their uh, specific drivers onto it. And then after that, it goes over to the carriers. And it's usually from, I think, what we discussed last time, or what we, we more or less determined last time, that it's usually the carriers that are slowing it down the most. Right, which is where I was saying that I like to go to that native Google experience uh, so that I know that I'm going to get the update pretty much as soon as it comes out. And that's been the case for the past few updates that I've received on my Android phone. And if you look at the numbers, you can see that there's mostly just old legacy devices that are not being used anymore and people are getting rid of them because 
they can't really operate like a smartphone anymore because part of the smartphone experience is actually being able to play current games and use the current applications. And as time progresses through this cloud model where everything gets updated centrally, you maybe can't run those newer versions and it becomes a pressure to get off the platform. So that's a good side to it. Still to date, their largest um, adoption is sitting on Jelly Bean. Right, because that was, what, uh, two years ago and those contracts haven't come up yet, right? So when people's contracts expire, they typically have an incentive to upgrade their phone. So we'll see those numbers swing over. Uh, There's obviously some people on the previous version of Ice Cream Sandwich. It's sitting around 11.5% of Android users. And that's because those people are just at the end of the contract and still the phone still has some use left for them. Uh, But yes, I don't think the motivation for people upgrading is security in pretty much any way. Although you do have to remember that these are operating systems operating systems like windows and mac and whatever version of linux or whatever you might be familiar with right they have security updates to the kernel within these patches so these phones are missing it another interesting thing that uh, goes hand in hand with that is when somebody has an old phone that they no longer want what do they do they they want to get rid of it most people at that point care about the personal information that's on the phone So they'll go through the phone menu and do a secure wipe of the phone. Or they'll do a wipe of the phone, assuming, I should say, that it is secure. There's been research that's uh, been conducted recently. This corporation bought several phones off of eBay and then forensically looked at the disk. You know, when, when you tell a computer that you want to erase information on it, mostly there's a there's a table on the computer that it looks up and it says okay, this file is at this location on a hard drive and therefore I know when it starts and when it ends and I can interpret it as perhaps an image or whatnot. So there's smart programs that'll say, hey, just assume that that table's been deleted because that's how they're deleted from phones and from disks. Typically, if you just go and delete, it doesn't actually securely erase it. It doesn't scramble the bits that were there. They're still there that just doesn't know how to allocate the space to go and read them. So there's smart programs that have been written that just say, scan it, and I have the smarts in this program to figure out where files start and end, and we will recreate this file allocation table. And so they've recently done that on a bunch of smartphones that they got off of eBay, where people just wiped their phones and sent it out. And lo and behold, they can find all of the information that was on there. They could find, you know, personal pictures, people taking pictures of, of their privates for whatever reason. Their pets. Um, that, sure, that too. Um, and contact information, they're able to recover some of that. So it wasn't a perfect use of, of being able to reconstruct everything that was on the phone, but it's enough, right, to say, hey, maybe just wiping your phone is not enough. And I believe that was the objective of the report. Um, they actually do sell a product that will securely wipe the phone or whatnot. But another easy method to do it, which I believe we'd mentioned when we were talking about our cell phones, is encrypt your phone. If you encrypt the contents of your phone, which I don't believe is capable yet on iOS devices, but certainly on Android, 
you can actually set it to encrypt your phone and then everything gets scrambled. And then if you sell your phone afterwards and do a secure wipe, no one could get anything off of it. When you do a wipe, it, it is now secure by the nature of the fact that the data was encrypted to begin with. While looking into the adoption rates, we also noticed that currently, apparently, iOS 7 has reached a 90% adoption rate with phone users. And this is prior to their launch of iOS 8. Yeah, I think that most of the reason is that they have automatic updates that automatically get pushed down to people. So people have to explicitly say, no, I don't want to upgrade my phone. And I, I'm not positive. I believe they get bugged for it every once in a while saying, hey, you really should update your phone. No. Right. And then another reason is some people have actually jailbroken their phone, which is uh, a way of getting outside of Apple's walled garden. Yeah, so getting special privileges to the phone, wherein it still roughly runs the operating system that they got on it last, but now uh, they're able to sideload applications like you can on Android. Uh, you're able to go to different stores, get pirated stuff off of the phone. And uh, a word of caution if you do that is that I believe the default password is Alpine, or at least it used to be for Apple devices. Once you jailbreak it, it also opens up a remote connection utilities such as uh, SSH or Telnet, I can't recall. But there were worms that went around for jailbroken phones and connected and installed bad malicious versions of itself and kept propagating across. Uh, that was at least a couple of years ago that I remember reading a story about that. I'll dig it up and put it in the show notes as well. So then with Apple's technique of not only... Um, so Apple negotiated with the carriers that the carriers aren't in control of the updates, that Apple does all of the updates on all the handsets. And Apple also has the infrastructure to push out the update widely enough that it can pretty much be like they've got the server capacity to handle everybody trying to update their phones simultaneously. And they also generally, with the larger releases, include a bunch of new features that they hype an awful lot. And it also helps that most of the people that are going into this iPhone mindset always need to have the latest one. So they just tend to get rid of their old ones a lot quicker anyway. True enough. So the jailbroken iPhone, uh, that worm that I was remembering, it actually rickrolled everybody that it connected to. I forgot that critical feature. Nice. <laughs> So that is obviously not what the bad guys would have done. This is uh, obviously somebody found this, uh, this problem and went about pranking people. But there's no reason why it couldn't have been installing malicious software or listening devices or whatever on people's phones. But so then with the Android adoption rate, when we look at the 4.1 version of Android, was actually susceptible to Heartbleed. And this brings us to one of our other news stories, and it also brings us to one of the other articles. Now let's talk about the, the heartbleed and the after effects of this, the aftermath. One of the articles that, uh, that I found rather interesting was it doesn't take an awful lot to develop a fix, develop a patch, develop the, the software fix in, once you find a vulnerability. Are you saying that once the bug that has been put in there is found, for the developer to go back and actually correct that bug 
that they then distribute out to the world is a trivial task? Or are you saying that applying the update to the world is a trivial task? Or are you saying that once the update's installed, actually protecting your computer by clicking on that tag, by, by selecting the tag to not enable heartbeat is trivial? Or are you even saying that perhaps uh, disabling the feature on your system once the Heartbleed was noticed, is a trivial feature. I'm saying that the actual development of the patch for the developer, once they figure out what they've done wrong, or once it is made evident where their their hole is, to try and fix that just uh, is not a crazy task. It's not remarkably difficult. The difficulty right. lies in getting people to adopt that fix. Yeah, so making the fa- making the patch is not that hard. Having people adopt it is where almost all of the problem lies. And this ties directly to that uh, Android adoption as they hurried out a fix. I don't know if they hurried out, but they created a fix for the 4.1.1 Android operating system, which was Jelly Bean, which still currently has the highest adoption rate. So people have not been able to get the fix for this Heartbleed on their, their Android device. True. True enough. And... That's just a, a small example of all the different things that are impacted by the Heartbleed vulnerability. Most of the talk back in the day was about what happens on the server side. So you're running a web server and it's using SSL and it's most likely, because it was 66% of the sites out there, were using OpenSSL. And then a subset of those between a two-year range period were actually vulnerable to Heartbleed as a recap. So that left, I don't know, something like 600,000 sites susceptible to Heartbleed, according to this article that you've, you've posted within uh, the show notes here. And about half of them hopped on that right away to actually go and patch it. I mean, it received media sensational coverage, which is uh, great for raising awareness. There was pretty much no one in the world that doesn't know about the Heartbleed bug because it was just plastered all over every news. And so some people went out and they dealt with it right away. And uh, a couple months after, it was actually cut in half. So there's, what, 300,000 systems that were still vulnerable to Heartbleed. And then like a month after that, so like last month, you know, there was still like 300,000 systems vulnerable to Heartbleed. There was like maybe 10,000 less that were vulnerable so now I think we've gone to the cycle where everybody who wants to proactively do stuff and secure their systems have gone ahead and done that. There's going to be a very negligible subset of people that uh, want to keep a vulnerable version around so that they can actually watch what people are doing with that and learn new tricks. And that is called a honeypot. So you have a purposely vulnerable system out there that's easy to find like this vulnerability is, easy to test. And then you watch what the bad guys do once they actually attach to your computer and try to compromise it. That's a technique that some threat intelligence folks do to see exactly what the bad guys are doing. And then they develop ways to circumvent that and fix that. And then it also gives them new thing to investigate to see if people are actually in the wild uh, compromising this. So you'll have people like intrusion detection folks that create these signatures throw out this signature for detection in their products to say, if you're seeing this, it means that people are compromising your systems. 
But I think the point is that with 300,000 systems out there still vulnerable to this, most of those people just don't care. Like, they've heard about it. Either their IT staff have lied to them and said, no, no, we fixed this, it's okay. Like, maybe they've mistakenly thought that they fixed it. There's probably a ratio of about 10% that are false positive that are fixed, but uh, are exhibiting some sort of behavior like this. And then you'll have the CIO, chief information officer, doesn't care to fix this, doesn't see it as a problem for them or whatnot. Can you can you summarize Heartbleed what the actual problem of, was? Yeah, in a couple of in a couple of words yeah, for anybody. It's really simple. So there's a a feature that to just test and see if the secure website you're connecting to is secure. So it sends out a heartbeat. It's like a like a ping and then a pong response almost, right? And part of the the way that you send it out is say, "Hey, return to me what I'm sending to you." So it's an echo back. Right, So you say, return to me Apple, and it's seven characters long. So it returns back Apple, right? And then you say, and you say, send me back no, and it's 25,556 characters long. And it'll say no, and then the rest of what's in the memory of the system for all the rest of those characters that you sent back to it. So there was no checking on the, the heartbeat at the actual length of the information you sent. And it just pulled everything from the computer memory, which can contain things like passwords, which can contain things like personal information that people have in there it can contain, you know, credit card numbers that were in the, in the middle of being processed. And it can actually contain back the thing that makes the web server secure, the secure socket layer certificate, which then you take and you can impersonate that web server. You can get in the middle and now start fielding all of this right traffic and seeing everything, or you can just sniff the wire and decrypt everything because you know the server's private key that's there. So now I'm not 100% certain, but I suspect that it is possible that some of the positive results that they're receiving back are related to people who just aren't using the secure socket layer. If you've just got a web page that you're not offering up a secure interaction on they may not have updated that because they just don't necessarily even think that it's worthwhile that could be some of them no i don't i don't believe so because there's no way that there's only 300,000 websites not responding securely that don't have this ssl certificate on there there's also no way that there's only 300,000 secure socket layer websites out there like https websites because there's Entirely more than that. These are definitely ones that appear to be running the vulnerable version of OpenSSL. It is kind of trivial to connect to a web server and see what version of software is running on there. A lot of the times people have their uh, actual servers set to reply back with a banner, it's called. So a piece of text that says, this is running this version. And so along the lines of the secure socket layer would say, yes, it's running this version of OpenSSL. That was just speculation on my part. I think the large majority of them is are probably just running the correct version of OpenSSL that could be vulnerable to it, uh, but don't necessarily have that heartbeat feature enabled. So part mm-hmm. of the fix at the time was, hey, you can actually just disable this heartbeat feature and then you won't be vulnerable to it. But I don't think that 
half of the ones that were vulnerable to this have actually taken that step. Again, this is probably like a 10 or 15% of the people have actually taken this step. Uh, and then there's those people that want to leave it vulnerable so they can do checks on what's there. And then, what, another three quarters of the ones that are vulnerable just don't care. Which actually brings me back right. to an experience that I had um, back in the day when I was experimenting with Linux. I had a web server running on it, and, uh, and it, I was just looking at the logs that were coming back on my Apache weblog. And I would see about two or three times a day people coming and connecting to my machine that had been compromised through the, through the IIS web server bug called Code Red. So way back in the day, in like 2001, there was this worm going around. And a worm is like a virus, but not only does it uh, attach itself to a file and expect somebody to manually copy it across and that way spread, this is like um, an airborne or in internet-borne virus that uh, that infects people and gets people to cough it out, right? So it actually goes, manipulates, and then self-propagates out. So Code Red did this through IIS version five or IIS version six of uh, the Microsoft web server, and it was a buffer overflow that existed within the IIS web server that was trivial to to execute and get it to do whatever you wanted. So uh, in this case of this worm, it would just go and infect other machines through the same method. And it was really easy to detect because basically it looked at exactly the right format and typically it would fill up the buffer with a bunch of A's. So you'd see in your web logs a ton of these A's in a row uh, and then followed by like an execute the command shell and then run whatever it got downloaded or whatnot. So the point is that it was probably about 10 years after Code Red was a thing out there that I was running my uh, Apache web server and I was still seeing these attacks against my system by machines that were infected and have been infected for a long time, beaconing out. This is a Windows 2000 server problem. So not only are there systems out there that are uh, vulnerable, there are systems out there that are infected and are obviously infected and people still aren't doing stuff about it. Right, which, yeah, absolutely ties into uh, one of the other articles that I thought was quite good, which is why I posted it up, was how a really widely reported sensationalized issue like this is actually good for the security community. I think it's definitely good in the fact that, uh, so in two, two ways. One, it's really good that it gets out there in everybody's face so that they pay attention to how something like this could personally affect them, right? They can see, hey, my address details, my personal information can be taken out of systems this way. It is a direct concern to me, right? And then on the other side, it also raises awareness to the security industry that, hey, we're very dependent on the software out there. Maybe we should spend some time, effort, and money into this open source project and actually look at the code and say, is there anything else we've missed? Are there any other problems? So there are people that have been funded 
through a Kickstarter campaign, I believe it was, to go and look at the OpenSSL code that's that's out there. And they've recently found a slew of other problems with it. Not as easily to exploit as that, but still very critical problems within OpenSSL. And again, there's it didn't receive the, the same kind of media fanfare that Heartbleed did because Heartbleed was was marketed really as a, a security problem that affects a lot of people. And I think that's really one of the first times we've seen that. And I know a lot of people in the security community think that it's crass that it was marketed like that. But deep down in my heart, I think that that marketing that happened on that bug actually got a lot of visibility, a lot more people to care generally about information security and a lot more people to actually go ahead and do something about the vulnerability quickly because now there was pressure from the top down, right? CEOs of companies were saying, Jensen, are we vulnerable to this? Are we going to lose everything? And so it actually prompted the minions in IT to go and scramble and do stuff. End users with their ever-ready panic at hand were able to put it towards something, and then as a direct result of that, you know, people would be calling into places which normally wouldn't hear anything about any kind of security bug or security flaw. And users were calling into places, really raising the awareness of the company. Like, this is such a huge thing. This privacy, the security, all of a sudden we actually need to pay attention to this. Right. And I thought that it, I thought that it actually worked out really well. And I thought it was very interesting that people were even you know, raising ire over this through the default ire communication channels like Twitter, right? They were just railing against companies, hitting them, hitting their Twitter feed and saying, you appear to be vulnerable to, of this or them not understanding it, saying, hey, you're running an SSL. You know, I don't want my personal information gone. Do something about it or I'm walking away as a customer, right? So there's a, there's a big, loud driving voice down on people to actually communicate if it was not a problem or do something and communicate that they've fixed it to the people. Transparency and security, in my view, is like the best. You, you absolutely want it. There's no such benefit as security through obscurity, which is different to say, you know, don't tell people your password. Obviously, don't tell people your password. That's not what I mean by transparency. But what I do mean is like you, you want people to understand that you're on top of it. Don't just say in a letter out to people that we take security very seriously, demonstrate it by saying, look, we are protecting your information. We know that this problem's out there. We're addressing it. This is our progress along, that kind of stuff. Speaking of people actively working against this, did you get a chance to take a look at uh, Google's Project Zero at all? Yeah, I've heard a few things about Project Zero. Um, I don't think it's definitively tied to this, uh, it, but it is probably a catalyst to this general classification of vulnerabilities that are out there that nobody's doing something about that are, you know, a, a large presence that I'm sure Google is prioritizing uh, their work efforts through stuff that is widely used. So my understanding, and you'll have to fill in the blanks here, is that Google started up this initiative that's going to look at software that's out there, typically common used open source software, such as OpenSSL and spend time um, trying to find flaws in it that could be trivially exploited. And then through responsible disclosure, they're going to communicate out to the people who, who make the flaws that it's a problem that it needs to get fixed. Yeah, that was more or less my understanding of it. They 
created almost a QA team for products that are not just theirs. Um, trying to find exploits, bugs, uh, flaws within the, the software, and then they're just going to be communicating this over to the actual manufacturers of the software. Which is fantastic, right? They, they are doing this, for what I can understand, absolutely no monetary benefit of, of themselves, right? They are going out there and finding flaws and communicating it to the people that make stuff, which is wonderful, but I also know that there's all the vulnerability researchers that are doing this independently and that are maybe part of a, a small shop that does this that are just laughing themselves silly because the problem they've always had is they find problems and then they communicate to the vendors and the vendors you know, do nothing, send lawyers after them, do just outright negligent stuff sometimes. Right. So so that's a big problem, which is why the whole uh, there's this debate within the security community as to responsible disclosure versus full disclosure. Right. Which just says, hey, if I just throw it up there anonymously that everybody can see it, then the actual vendor whose product is out there, they will get compromised. They will be have the blame laid against them and then they will have to go ahead and do something about it. The other side of the coin is, hey, if I go and I approach the vendor and I say, this is your problem, they will maybe deal with it, maybe not deal with it, maybe send the lawyers after me because now they know that I know about it. There's many times that people's speeches that they've prepared for uh, venues such as uh, Black Hat or DEF CON have actually been pulled because they were sued. And they said, you cannot disclose this. We haven't fixed it yet. And there's no timeline for people to fix it. As kind of an off-the-cuff response to that, I feel that while an independent shop or a smaller shop of people who have been doing this independently would be running into these kind of issues, I kind of feel like with the clout of something like Google behind them, that they might actually have... Actually, I'm just going to start that whole sentence again. Um, looking at this idea that you've got the small shops, independent now? guys who uh, are having issues with companies taking them seriously, companies listening to them, companies threatening to litigate. I feel like with okay. something of the clay yeah, Google behind you, because they are apparently taking a bunch of indie guys um, and getting them to do this, but then they would have the backing of something massive like Google behind them, which would make some of these companies and manufacturers and developers stand up and take notice. And quite honestly, would you threaten to litigate against Google? So that's the case, right? So there's it's a dual-edged sword. So now no one's going to threaten to litigate Google because it's so big you can't you know get that quelching of somebody just by suing them. Google will have a, a slew of lawyers willing to defend these people. And yes, they've actually got a whole bunch of really great people. So one of their acquisitions was Geohot, who had reverse engineered the PlayStation 3 and done some iPhone jailbreaking as well. Uh, so we've discussed a little bit about what that means beforehand. But yeah, so Google's acquiring great talent in this space, right? The other side of the coin, though, is I think now they're going to be stuck in the responsible disclosure route. And they will be strung along by these vendors, I suspect. 
and saying, oh, we don't have the resources to deal with this right now. Delay actually telling the world about what you've found out. Uh, so we'll see how that works out as well. Right now, I think that that's a, kind of a corner they've painted themselves into. So yes, it gets rid of people suing them frivolously. But at the same time, I think that uh, someone will be able to play Google a little bit better than an independent person. And then who knows if this gets escalated up the Google chain, people might actually say this is not a big deal and, and downplay the vulnerability in the eyes of management that might not understand it. Entirely speculation on our part. So really, yeah, it's a no, question just, of wait and see, and we'll see how this turns out, because quite realistically, you know, it could go either way. Um, yes, and I'm just, trying really to like play devil's, I'm really just trying to play devil's advocate and show you know, what the downside might be, uh, and we'll see what, what actually happens. I'm not claiming that you know, one way or the other is going to happen, right? but uh, I'm just trying to see the benefit and, and maybe some of the downside there. Uh, so other people, though, uh, have these bug bounty programs, right? So if a company like a big company who has been burnt by these things before might see the benefit in having a mature system to be able to accept vulnerabilities from these people and deal with it and then actually solicit people to go and test their systems. So I know that Facebook has this. I know that uh, Google has this and my phone's ringing, which is really annoying while recording a podcast. Pardon me. Hello. Hey. I am recording. <laughs> the one that we... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, bola ball, yeah. Yeah, pick it up. That's cool. We'll bring it out east, yeah. No, I don't like washer toss. The bola ball is way better. Absolutely. There's more room for error. Um, I was also wondering if you could pick up, uh, Audrey, a little like travel mouse, like a small little mouse that's got a right mouse button and a left mouse button. You know, and just a cheap little something so that she could play Minecraft. Cool. For the laptop. Okay. Sorry about that interruption. No problem. Um, so, so this sort of all this discussion about uh, cause, effect, reaction to massive vulnerabilities really works as a lovely segue to the last news story that we had covered at some point, which was the uh, the credit card issues that had been brought to light with the the massive target breach and it kind of really highlights their with the 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 response the effect the everybody jumping on board with the result of this which is nobody's done anything so uh, as a result before, of the target breach, go there really okay go ahead I just wanted to finish up the thing that I was interrupted with around bug bounties. Oh, okay. 
so yeah, so bug bounties are a thing that's out there. Uh, people, mature companies have put out bounties for people to report uh, the bugs to, and then they'll pay out said bounty uh, if it's a big, big enough problem. So some of the major companies have these things like Google, Facebook, uh, Twitter, I believe, has spawned one off. And then there's some other companies that uh, haven't reached that point yet. So Valve is actually trying to become more mature in their ability to deal with security concerns. And people are asking for a bug bounty program to be associated with them. And Valve is uh, this computer game platform uh, and the software distribution method for everybody to connect to. I'm not sure if you have a better description for what Steam is or not. Uh, but yeah, so they're trying to become more transparent about the security that they have and what problems exist and uh, relay that if there's a, a game development shop that has a big problem with their online game, then Valve will help negotiate that communication back to them. But there's these other companies out there that actually run these bug bounty programs for your company if your company is not big enough. You can actually volunteer to have this company deal with bug reports and pay them a certain amount per year. And then you get all of this testing of your products and have to pay out people for finding bugs. It's true, but it's also probably way cheaper to have someone out there as a hobbyist discover a problem with your system than paying dedicated people and employees to do it as well, right? So there's this balance there as well. Like we said, it's more expensive to deal with it after the fact, so I'm not negating that problem. Like, if you have the ability to hire testers yourself, if you have the the bandwidth and the, the funds to hire people that can do proper security tests, definitely do that, right? But if you are a small company, don't have the resources, and want to hear about the problems first so you can address them on the next patch before it affects you in front of the world right? Or at least you get before somebody nefarious maybe takes advantage of it. This is a great alternative too. So I'll have some links to those things in the show notes. And all of this discussion of the results of finding vulnerabilities, finding issues like this kind of ties in uh, as a delightful segue to our last news story that we had covered, which was the target breach the reason that this ties in so well is Target's breach was their point-of-sales systems were compromised and essentially attackers got 70 million names, address, email addresses, phone numbers of the 70 million customers. And some of that also had credit card data compromised. As many as 110 million people would have been affected by this breach. And this has driven the change... Well, actually, this has driven absolutely no change. So nothing's changed. Nothing's happened. Uh, good work on the U.S. credit card front. <laughs> right. So so the U.S. credit cards haven't actually changed. They haven't gone to chip and pin. The bucket hasn't spilt over enough yet. However, I remember you were ranting very much about the fact that people should just choose to shop places that do and do not have chip and pin. And I had come to the defense saying that it's something outside of the control of an individual organization because they are not credit card issuers. It has to be a government-level-wide thing in the U.S. Uh, for them to reach that point. Now, here I am eating a little bit of humble pie because actually Target 
issues their own in-store kind of credit card, right? And they have gone chip and pin. So if you actually have a Target credit card, you're actually in a better spot using Target's custom credit card in Target stores than you are using pretty much any other credit card issued in the United States anywhere else. Because they will still use Magstar. So, to be fair, uh, Target did have a pretty big response to this. They've issued this chip and pin card. They've also been supporting a lot of the people who have been trying to do um, their credit checks and all of that. Uh, But it really hasn't changed the position of the U.S. banking institution. And there was an article that uh, I threw up there that threw out some interesting numbers uh, that I put up onto the show notes that threw up some interesting numbers. Uh, A 2011 white paper from ATM manufacturer Triton Systems put the estimated cost of upgrading ATMs in the U.S. at about $500 and POS terminals across the country somewhere around $6.8 So this goes to the idea of if it's a big enough compromise or if it's a big enough issue, eventually they'll lose enough money that it'll be cost effective for them to roll out the changes and updates. So here's the devil's advocate side of this, is that credit card companies make hundreds of billions of dollars off of credit cards in a year, right? They are suffering losses of about $22 billion, I think I read, uh, for last year for credit cards. So it would actually be cheaper to solve the problem. It's just a pain, right? They'd actually make out way better to do this. But it's a huge problem rolling it out. It, it's a multi-year effort. And then you have to get somebody to actually foot the bill to do this in the first place. And certainly the company that says your credit card number is going to be 16 digits only is not the people who care enough about this to do something about it, right? Their whole job so far through uh, the payment card industry's data security standard is pushing this down on other people to do something about it. So, yeah. So general lack of uh, maturity all across the board. I think back to the target point of view, though, there's some very interesting things that happened at Target after the breach, right? Like you said, they've taken it very, very seriously. The CIO resigned over it. So the chief information officer who's responsible for all of the IT actually resigned over the breach. The CEO was under a huge amount of pressure from the board. Um, and I think that he either resigned or there was mumblings that he resigned but I think it's a false pretense that to say that it was exactly for the breach. Apparently, Target's been doing horribly in Canada, which was a big uh, venture that they had, and they've lost a ton of money. So the board's obviously upset at the CEO for having uh, agreed to go in that direction with all the stockholders yelling and shouting. Please tell at them. me you're saying the board, um, and then not the board. He got in trouble with the Borg. No, it's the board. Oh, no, with with the board of directors. For Target, sorry. Uh, and then, you know, Target has just recently hired a chief information security officer uh, to deal with it. And, you know, the downside is that they hired this person who was a uh, GM exec beforehand. So, 
GM has had some very bad experience with uh, manufacturer defects, I believe, with their cars and choosing to not do simple fixes. So we don't know how that is going to all pan out. But uh, good luck to Brad Mayorino, who's the uh, CISO for Target now. So reading um, one other article that essentially um, said that in the in the banking industry, not that much actually changed because, you know, they haven't made this swing from Magstripe. This other article said essentially, in fact, the exact opposite of improvement. They said that uh, compromises have increased this year. Uh, they just kind of keep going up. So the only other thing that we could potentially take out of this, obviously, is that with the massive target breach and the uh, huge amount of news that it made, um, it then taught other people that apparently compromising point-of-sale systems wasn't that difficult, and so now everyone's doing it. <laughs> so that that's uh, definitely the earlier part of that statement is true. It is easy to compromise point-of-sales systems. Uh, there was recently a bunch of analysis done on uh, one of the vendors for point-of-sale systems called Aloa, and people have purchased these units to do security research on them, and have found that basically you just have to look at the point of sales device the wrong way and you have access to its information. It has terrible security on it and you'd think that these devices would have really good protections because they're supposed to have really good protections uh, mandated down on them. But, uh, but that's not the case. And other people have recently gone and bought some of these devices off of eBay from failed retailers and lo and behold, guess what's still on these devices? Credit card numbers. Yay. Oh, uh, from previous transactions. From previous transactions, all able to be extracted through the, the point of sales uh, service that was purchased off of eBay because obviously it wasn't wiped properly. But it, the information never should have been recorded in clear text. Anyways, it breaks all of these regulatory requirements and ah. Kumudgeon, yeah. <laughs> Kumudgeon came out. Um, yes, so lots of people doing security wrong, not caring. And what does it mean? It means that people are selling credit card numbers and people have to deal with fraud and banks have to deal with fraud and there's all sorts of other stuff going on that's just terrible. So thanks fraud. a lot for making my day better. But now you're on vacation, so you don't have to think about this ever again. Until tomorrow. All right, so let's wrap up this show. Agreed. Um, we've discussed a lot of stuff. If you think that this was helpful, please do not hesitate to let us know. You can send us an email with your feedback to feedback at in-security.org. You can fire off a tweet to us at insecurity show, Or, of course, you can leave comments on our website, in-security.org where you'll find the show notes that we've mentioned so heavily throughout this, so please go and see them there. The episode specifically is in-security.org slash EP028. All right, so uh, you have yourself a great week. And, we'll call uh, it a week. We'll call it a week. A week between these podcasts. Have yourself a great trip out in Montreal, regardless of how many 
uh, episodes we record between now and then. Thanks, and happy time off with the kidlets. Thank you. 